Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I speak with Vicky Dawson, who's Chief Executive and Founder of the Children's Sleep Charity. I like to use this podcast to speak to people who aren't just running a charity or running key functions of a charity, but people who are really invested in building the capacity of the sector. So I was really delighted that I was able to speak to Vicky, who's instrumental in setting up Voluntary Action Doncaster, because currently there's no CVS in Doncaster itself. Vicky strikes me as a woman with an incredible vision, which I think comes across really strongly, and some brilliant skills around identifying need and bringing the right people together to make things happen. And she's also great proper Northern. We talk about Vicky's journey as a founder of a charity and how relentless it is, and Vicky's journey as a leader. We talk about her incredible vision and how she rallies people around and draws on her networks. And we also talk about the importance of infrastructure. I hope you enjoy listening. If you do, please share on social media and rate on iTunes. Today I'm joined by Vicky Dawson, who is the founder and chief executive of the Children's Sleep Charity in Doncaster. Hi Vicky, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, it's great. Vicky, if you could give us an introduction on your background and a little bit about the sleep charity as well, that would be really helpful. My background is in teaching and I was teaching right up until about four or five years ago now and it was partly because of my son who had sleep issues that I set the charity up. Um, So my background's not actually really in the sector, so it's been quite a a steep learning curve. The Children's Sleep Charity supports families of children with sleep issues from the age of 12 months upwards. And we do it either face-to-face or by delivering training to other professionals. And we do a lot of work as well around research and also around campaigning to make people aware of how important sleep is for wellbeing. What sort of teaching did you do? What sort of age did you teach? I was uh, qualified as a primary school teacher, but I was always really interested in working with children with special educational needs and disabilities. So my first teaching post was in a special school, and it was for children who had got physical disabilities. And then I taught in special schools for quite a few years, went back into mainstream for a little while, and then worked as an advisory teacher for a local authority. So I used to go around all the primary schools advising around children who've got additional needs. Wow, quite an interesting and mixed teaching background then. Yeah, it was really it was really interesting, really mixed. And when I worked in special schools, I worked with the full age range from sort of two years right up until 19 years old. And I've worked in sort of various roles as well. So I've been a deputy head teacher. And I've also worked in the hospital, in the child development team. So assessing children who have got difficulties as well. So really varied work. Okay, okay. And is that all around this area? Have you always been around the sort of Doncaster, Yorkshire area? Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm really intrigued about the children's sleep charity, partly because I have two small children and... um, Yeah, I wish my my youngest one would sleep a bit better. So I have like a vested interest in being here today. I basically want to understand like how do I get her to sleep today? (laughs) But um, tell us a bit about what sparked that idea. So when I had my child, there was sort of lots of information about safe sleep, Mm -hmm. but I'd never really fully considered sleep routines and that kind of side of it. 
And I just expected that as a child got older, they, they would sleep. So I was expecting sleepless nights in you know, the first few months and the first year, certainly. But I didn't expect it to continue mm-hmm. and actually to worsen rather than to improve. And when that did happen, I was really shocked by the lack of support that's out there. So I asked for help from a health visitor and I was basically given a book on controlled crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an exhausted parent. I was working full time. I didn't have the ability at that point to read a book or the time to read a book. And the idea of leaving a child to cry was not one that I wanted to particularly follow from my own personal parenting style. Yeah. Um, I did ask for some help from a GP as well, and I was told that children don't sleep, and this is just how it is. Mm -hmm. And I was actually prescribed antidepressants at that point. And because a medical practitioner had sort of said that I was depressed, I accepted that. And actually, looking back, I wasn't depressed. I was chronically sleep deprived. The reason that I set the charity up is because I went on to become completely obsessed by sleep and read (laughs) everything I could get my hands on about sleep. I sort of recognised that there's a behavioural approach to sleep that you can use that can be highly effective. And what I mean by that is sort of assessing why a child's having sleep issues before you start to put strategies in place. So I took a step back and thought really carefully about what was contributing to the sleep issues. And there were numerous things, including things like diet, um, including bedroom environment. Um, I was the parent who said I'd tried everything. And actually I had, but I'd not tried the right combination of things for long enough. That was the key. So once I made a thorough assessment of what was going on and put the right strategies in place, and I was really consistent about seeing them through, there was a huge improvement in his sleep. He started to sleep through the night, and it was relatively quick as well, a couple of weeks. But it was tough doing it. It was really hard. Uh, But the results were just amazing for him and for me. You know, he was able to meet his full potential, and I was able to feel so much better, look better. Oh. Yeah, all those kind of things. And from there on in, um, I started initially to work with a disability charity where we produced sort of sleep workshops and we went out and we supported families of children with disabilities using these methods. And time and time again, I was hearing that it's really successful. It's life-changing. And unfortunately, as can happen in the sector, the funding ran out and I went back into teaching. So had you set up the charity at that point? Or was this like a a sort of towing the water? Yeah, this was right this was sort of right at right at the very beginning of sort of learning the principles of the work that we do. And can I just ask, how old was your child as well when When he started to sleep six? Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, six years old. That's a long time, isn't it? It's a long time to be sleep deprived. Yeah, it really is. I then went back into teaching and I was sort of helping people in my spare time. So I'd get random emails and things. I'm a friend of a friend who says that you know about getting kids to sleep and I'm desperate. 
So that's how it started. And I was um, answering all these emails in the evening and then the families were coming back when it works. Um, you know, amazing, thank you. And one day I suddenly had the idea that I need to set a charity up because there's so many families out there struggling and it can lead you to absolute crisis point. So I knew nothing about setting a charity up. I was very, very naive. In my mind, you have a charity, people give you money, and then you go and help people. And that is how I seriously thought it would work. And what I quickly discovered is it doesn't work like that at all. And that was back in 2012. And I started to try to register the charity. So you basically gave a bit of a synopsis of what you thought, what a charity was like. Mm. So people give you money and you go and do the work. What's your synopsis on what it's actually like? It is so difficult to access funding, particularly around sleep issues, because a lot of funders believe that it's a, a health issue and that parents get this support through, say, health visitors or GPs. Some funders believe that you can get this sort of support from places like the children's centres, you know, the family support mm. workers, but quite often they're not trained in sleep. So my experience now of running a charity is that it is like running a business, so we've got to be very strategic, got to have a number of different income streams. Also, I've got to have that evidence base so that we can actually prove that what we do is working and is effective and it's really really tough so if I'd have been sort of having this conversation in 2012 and listening to somebody speaking about setting a charity up I might have been a little bit put off because I didn't recognize how difficult it was going to be and how you've just got to keep going and keep going and just really hang on in there if it's something that you truly believe in never give up so what was the pivotal moment what was the tipping point where was there a tipping point yeah I think there was um, a couple of tipping points so first of all uh, I had some meetings with Doncaster CCG and asked them to give a small amount of money so that we could prove that this would be a helpful service to commission that families wanted the service and then it's effective and that it could be cost saving. So they gave me a small sum of money and we did prove it. And then they gave us some more money. And then we ended up being a commissioned service in Doncaster so that every family in Doncaster who has a child aged 12 months upwards can access one-to-one -one support from one of our sleep practitioners. So to finally get that first contract in that way was a, a significant tipping point. Yeah, huge success as well. Yeah. I saw the video on your website with the director of commissioning saying that the success rate was 70 to 90%, which mm -hmm. feels huge. Yeah. Um, and he also mentioned something which I hadn't really clocked and I wanted to get information from you on, on how do you get to this point and what is the medication. But he was saying to get children to sleep without medication. Like, mm. what? I didn't know that medication was prescribed to get children to sleep. One of the concerns that there is in the health service is the prescribing of sleep medication for children uh, when it may be unnecessary. So there is something called melatonin, which can be prescribed. So melatonin is the hormone that we produce naturally when it gets dark that helps us to sleep 
there's some research that suggests some children don't produce enough melatonin. So maybe children who are on the autistic spectrum. Our children with ADHD may produce it later in the evenings, as do teenagers. So the circadian clock alters slightly. So children are being prescribed melatonin to help them to go to sleep. And for some children, that prescription is very appropriate and they will need that. But actually what we've done in Doncaster is we now have a pathway so that we work with the families first because what we need to try to do is use a behavioural approach Mm -hmm. to avoid that prescription drug. And even if a child does need the melatonin, using a behavioural approach can also be really, really helpful. So talk to me about the behavioural approach. I'm basically trying to get tips here. So we work on a very bespoke basis with our families. What is their goal? And we work to empower them with knowledge about sleep so that then they can identify why a child might not be sleeping and they can pick the strategies that they want to use. So, for example, some families want to co-sleep. And if that's done safely, that's, you know, absolutely fine. We want to be very respectful of families' parenting styles. So we want to offer information and the families take the bits that sort of fit in with their lives and their beliefs. I think a lot of what we do is listening. Because when you've got a child with a sleep issue, sometimes you don't feel you can go and tell anybody. You feel quite judged. Yeah, Yeah, and you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to get into a row with somebody who doesn't agree that you should have your 12-month-old baby sleeping between you and your partner for a year. Whereas... It's actually quite nice (laughs) for me personally, not judging. Yeah, so there is a lot of just listening and actually people, parents feeling better for just speaking about it and reducing some of those feelings of isolation they might have. Mm. You're right, when you do start to talk about children's sleep, lots of judgments, you know, even teenagers, we get lots of judgments around that. Mm. I did some interviews a few weeks ago because it was discussed um, in Parliament around changing the school start times for teenagers. Yeah, and I did quite a few media interviews around that. And I know you should never read the comments, but occasionally I do. And the stuff that you're reading is lazy teenagers. When I was a teenager, we just had to get out of bed and that's how it was. Actually, some of these teenagers are presenting to us as a charity and saying, help me, I can't get out of bed. I'm really, really struggling. And we can help them to improve the sleep Mm -hmm. using the behavioural techniques. So there's no need for the school time to change. What needs to change is education about sleep Mm -hmm. um, and actually judgment about it. So if you've got a sleep issue, let's talk about it. Let's make it okay to say, in our home, we've got a sleep issue. And what can I do about it? Rather than just implying that it's either bad parenting or that people are being lazy. If we've got the the knowledge about sleep, then we will put in the the best practice that we can Mm. within our families. Is there a typical family that kind of comes to you? I imagine it's the full spectrum. There isn't really a typical family that we come into contact with. Um, Sleep issues affect everybody, and we see families that are hugely disadvantaged. We work with hard-to-reach families. We work with very affluent families as well. 
I think it's something that affects everyone. So we we deliver training to Norland College, which is the uh, very prestigious college where lots of the celebrities get their nannies from. And the sleep issues that they have there may vary to um, the sleep issues that we more commonly see, but they're still sleep issues and they are still affecting the well-being of the child. We deliver work into boarding schools where they have international students. Um, you know, we're talking about boarding schools that, that charge sort of £50,000 a year here, but the children are having sleep issues yeah. and that is affecting their attainment and their overall well-being. We do work with the most disadvantaged members of communities as well, and sometimes they've not got the basics that they need, you know, like curtains at the windows and things like that. So it is, it does sort of cross every sort of demographic that you can imagine. How much are you able to take into account things like additional or complex needs, family relationships, you know, different stresses that the child might have on them obviously affects various different behaviours throughout the day so how much are you able to go into that territory and I guess work with other uh, voluntary and community organisations to support a family? In terms of the children with uh, disabilities research suggests over 80% of those children will have a sleep issue at some point so we do commonly work with children who've got a diagnosis it might be something like cerebral palsy, ADHD, autism And we've just completed a research study in Sheffield uh, with Sheffield Children's Hospital and Sheffield Mm -hmm. City Council that's been published. And the children in that study had either got ADHD or they uh, they were looked after, and some of them were both. And the research found that using the methods um, that we promote, the children got an additional 2.4 hours sleep per night. Oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. Um, it also They also measured the impact on parental well-being. Yeah, and I mean, it improved a... drastically in every measure. Yeah, it's really hard. I think I've always been at like nine hours a night kind of person. And then when we had children, obviously that kind of goes out the window. I wish I was as tired as I said I was before I had children. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you a question about Sheffield Sleep Unit. So Sheffield have worked with us to commission training. So in Sheffield, they've got a tiered approach where the sleep unit is at Sheffield Children's Hospital. And that's more for the medical type of sleep issues. And then what they've done is they have had training from us all the way through different professions, so like health visitors, uh, school nurses, social workers. So the idea is that there are professionals in Sheffield who can support families in their immediate locality to get um, the sleep information that they need. It's amazing. It's amazing how how you've spread out. And I'm amazed that sweeping generalisation but I assumed you'd be working with deprived communities within Doncaster but hearing that you do stuff across like boarding schools and things like that you can like I get that sleep is a problem across the board but that you've sort of integrated into various different audiences. Yeah it really is it is so for example I go to Brighton University to lecture the postgraduate medical students about sleep because it's, it's missing from a lot of the sort of medical training as yeah. well. I lecture at Sheffield Hallam to the teachers, you know, about sleep because it's missing from their 
training. So we're sort of getting in at every level and we're, we're even getting international requests now uh, for mm-hmm. support. So I'm a sleep practitioner, I went to Russia last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, and at the moment I'm on a research group in Canada to look at the model that we've developed over here and how we can reach disadvantaged families in Canada that are actually in quite rural areas so quite difficult geographically to reach as well yeah so has this taken off more than you thought it would do how did what how did you think about it in what 2012 when you thought about founding this charity did you think that that was how it would end up do you think you'd be flying stuff out to Russia and on lecturing on with medical students or I think I've always thought about it as being something big I've always had in my mind the vision that every family should be able to access free evidence-based sleep support in their locality. That is my aim. Because sleep's not regulated, anybody can say that they're a sleep expert, sleep practitioner, whatever term you want to give it. And there are vulnerable families out there who will pay money for advice that sometimes is not the best advice. And that is a concern to me. If we were saying that a child was having half the amount of food or water they needed, we'd be horrified. But actually sleep is important to that level because if we don't get the sleep, then, you know, we can fail to thrive as children in terms of growth, weight, all kinds of different ways. So I've always thought about that as my end goal, The path we've taken to get there, or we are taking to get there, hadn't been planned out particularly well, (laughs) I must admit. And that's now sort of where where I'm really trying to focus on being much more strategic about how we do manage that. So tell us about your journey as a leader. I think it has been sort of a slow development, so... It has grown very gradually over time. I was so fortunate in the early days that two of the team that I used to work with in another charity said to me, right, we're going to leave our jobs and we're going to come and we're going to work with you. And I remember the phone call and saying, but you can't because I don't have any jobs. And they said, that's fine. We will be your volunteers and one day you will have jobs and we will then work with you. And I was like, oh, now there's the pressure. And that is what motivated me to actually really keep going because I knew that they had invested in the charity. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just me believing in it. Um, So I think it sort of evolved gradually from that point. They must have had faith in you as a leader, though, even if you weren't consciously positioning yourself as a leader. Like, you don't just quit your job because... Because <laughs> your mate's doing something different. like I wouldn't quit my job for a lot of my friends. So they must have had a lot of faith in you, this vision that you have. Yeah, and I think as well when we look at sleep and we see how important it is, the very fact that there's no other charity out there in England and Wales mm. solely concentrating on sleep, it gives us an enormous opportunity when we consider that sort of 40% of children have probably got a sleep issue at some mm. point. So yeah, they, they did have a lot of faith. And I guess I've developed my leadership skills sort of working as a deputy head teacher in schools because I was sort of managing a team of staff and had to think carefully about all sorts of things like different personalities, coaching people to get the best out of them, having a relaxed leadership style with 
colleagues, but also being very clear about what needs to be done and why I'm monitoring that. And um, I think that's part of my natural leadership style. Um, yeah. And it's the way that I enjoy to lead. I like to lead by example uh, and, you know, to show people I will do any aspect of the roles in the in the charity. Well, like you said, you had just been cleaning the toilets. Yeah, I right? have just yeah, been yeah, cleaning yeah. the toilets, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a bit of furniture removing this morning, you know. Um, and I, I believe that that's exactly how it should be. I would never want to be a leader who sits in an office and has my door shut. That is not about the way that I lead at all. Yeah. One of the things that I look for in people that I chat to on the podcast is people that are sort of actively involved in and interested in in building the sector, strengthening the sector. You're involved with establishing voluntary action Doncaster. Do you want to talk to us about how that's come about and who you're working with on that? Yes. Uh, When I set up the sleep charity, I... I got some support from Voluntary Action Motherham because I was living in Motherham at the time and the support that I got was just so valuable to me at that point Um, and to be able to have a a place where I could call or arrange a meeting and ask all those questions that you think are really silly questions and for somebody to be able to answer them and for them to um, sort of coach me through that setting up process was just brilliant and when I moved into the Doncaster area obviously Voluntary Action Rotherham uh, weren't really able to support me Mm. anymore and as I moved over into Doncaster unfortunately Doncaster CVS closed down and therefore there was no sort of infrastructure support organisation in the town for charities and I was sitting in a lecture and it was part of the Duke of York Community Initiative award that we won in 2016 and it was being presented by a CVS and it was just one line that the presenter said that really sort of hit home and she said all towns have a CVS organisation like ours. And I thought, well, Doncaster doesn't. Mm. And I started to really sort of think about it. And if I'd have been thinking of setting the sleep charity up and I was living in Doncaster at that point and I had not had any support, would I have got as far as I've got with the support that I got from Voluntary Action Rotherham and Janet Wheatley's amazing team there. And I'm not sure that I would. And then I started to think, well, there's going to be lots of people in Doncaster who've got a great idea and they just need a little bit of support in order to carry it through, in order to make it happen. Somebody who they can ask, you know, for bits of advice. And that was... At that point that I thought something needs to be done about this. And also for the, the charities and the sector in the town, it's it can be quite frustrating because there's no training particularly going on in that one hub 
of a place or there's no volunteering platform available in that one place like you might perhaps get in Sheffield or other neighbouring towns. So that's where the idea started. Must be a significant need in Doncaster. I don't know what the, what the sort of figures are in terms of how many VCOs there are, but um, I grew up just north of Doncaster in Selby and my knowledge of Doncaster would lead me to think that there, it's quite a deprived area in many ways. Yeah. Um, and there are pro- probably quite a lot of VCOs operating, like you say, without any support. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really difficult to gauge how many. We're thinking about 1,500 um, at least, but we've not got the figures because everything sort of becomes so fragmented mm. um, in the town. So I don't think we truly know how many are out there right now. And that's part of our work as well, to find out who is out there yeah. and what they offer and to make the local communities aware of that and, you know, the, the support that they can get through the sector too. Mm. So are you working with NAVCA? I don't actually know how you go about setting up a CVS. How does it work? <laughs> NAVCA... <laughs> just exploring that at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> NAVCA have been really generous with their time and they do sit on our steering group and I'm hugely appreciative of that because it's allowed us to contact other CVS organisations across the country to look at different models of working, um, uh, to explore how the infrastructure should look in Doncaster um, and, and also it, it's about trying to make it so that it's cost effective and that it is a voice for the sector. One of the things that I feel is really missing from Doncaster and from the feedback that we get in other people agree is the networking opportunities. Yeah. So it would be really good to have like an award ceremony for the, the sector in the town where we can celebrate some of this wonderful work that's going on that can so easily get missed and to find out as well who else is out there what are you doing how can we work together to make things even better for the town so I think we've got a really exciting opportunity but it's also a huge challenge because there's no funding for us to be able to do this work so is it set up as a registered charity yet at the moment, the papers are all with the Charity Commission. I understand there's quite a long backlog, so it is a, a constituted organisation. We have received our first funding from Awards for All, and that is going to allow us to set up a website. And as part of the website, we're also going to be able to capture the information from organisations across the town, so they will be able to input their details into the website to create a database so that we know who's out there and so that the um, community members can search that as well and start to see who's out there so that's sort of the first stage and we're hoping the website will go live in about July August time. Okay exciting and do you know what sort of services you're going to offer and how? At the moment we're developing a strategic plan and what we've identified is that a volunteering platform will be really important for the Mm. town so that organisations can advertise what opportunities there are available around volunteering and also the public can sort of search those opportunities so that's something that we are looking at as a priority. Uh, We're also keen to offer things like funding fairs for the sector. Again, it's about 
funding for ourselves because we've got to have certain things in place to do that, such as insurance, which costs money. So again, we are applying for funding to cover these startup costs as well. So who else is involved in Voluntary Action Doncaster? So we have a meeting every three months of our steering group and it is open to anyone. So at the moment we've got Doncaster Chamber on there, Doncaster Council, uh, NAVCA as we mentioned. And then there are a number of other sort of leaders from charities across Doncaster as well who are interested in how they can support the sector to develop. It sounds like you're very good at bringing together the right people to get things going. Like that's a skill, isn't it? It is definitely a skill, yes. And I think this goes back to what I said about the sleep charity. Sometimes it's just like relentlessly keep going and keep going and keep going. So part of what we're trying to do at the moment is to make people aware. So we've got a meeting with Ed Miliband at the end of the month to speak to him about Voluntary Action Doncaster um, and we have also contacted the other two local MPs so that they're aware of what we are trying to do as well. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think the key things that have come out for me in terms of your leadership are around the having a huge vision because I'm sure a lot, lots of people in Doncaster are probably pissed off that there isn't a CVS but... I'm not sure that many other people are like, right, well, let's set one up. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I've got a bit of a philosophy in life that actually if something's not as you want it to be, you can either do something about it or shut up. I'm not into moaning about things. Um, If it's not right, then what can we do to try to improve it? And the phrase that I always use in the sleep charity, which drives the staff crazy, is it's an exciting challenge. So (laughs) anything that's a little bit difficult is an exciting challenge. And that's how I view things that, yeah, it might not be what we'd planned. We may not have planned this route, but actually let's make the best of it Mm -hmm. and let's see where it can take us. Let's have a go at putting together something ourselves and actually something that is truly managed from the sector for the sector. Yeah, yeah. And this is why the steering group's open to everybody. Literally anybody can turn up to it. Yeah, because I really believe in partnership working. As a leader, I'm very aware of the aspects that I'm not good at. And that's where I need other people to come in. Um, And I think in terms of when you're trying to set an organisation or what you've got to look around is for those key skills and where you're missing those skills, bring people in who've got them. Um, And that's what we're trying to do with the Voluntary Action Doncaster. It sounds amazing. It sounds genuinely amazing. I really look forward to seeing what's going to happen with it. I'd like to finish with a question, which is, is there a book, person or ethos that's inspired your work? There's lots of people who've inspired me, but the one that really sticks out for me is a a wonderful lady called Lizzie Jenkins. And Lizzie employed me into the sector from teaching. And the reason that Lizzie inspired me so much is she was a leader of a a team and the team were all so hardworking and they had so much fun everybody loved getting up to go to work and it was because Lizzie took care of the team she was very respectful 
in terms of giving her time to the team. You never felt bad about asking her questions. She made sure that everybody had supervision and she really listened to any concerns you got and they were sort of nipped in the bud. But she also knew you was a person and she knew about your family. She took an interest in people. And she had this amazing energy. And if you went to her with an idea, she would explore how to make that a reality. And I've been used to coming from an education background where you've got to sit in a hundred staff meetings to discuss it and then decide that probably it's too late now anyway. And that's the culture that I'd come from. So to arrive into this new environment where you have an idea and it's like, yeah, that sounds brilliant. Let's give it a try was just like a breath of fresh air. Lizzie ignited a passion in me for setting up the charity and she was actually our first chair of trustees, um, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, mm. And she's now gone to retire and is uh, in Cornwall, so I don't get to see her too often. Um, although I do see that she's not taking retirement easily and she's doing lots of wonderful things. Uh, but she was just such and is such an inspiration to me um, in the way that I lead the team um, and the way that we do things, really. Our whole ethos has come from Lizzie. She sounds amazing. I was going to say, so where can we find her? But in, in Cornwall. Where did you work with her then? Where were you recruited to? Uh, so I worked with her at Scope. The disability oh, charity right. yeah amazing thank you so much for your time you're welcome it's been um, it's been really interesting hearing about what you're up to thank you the highlights that i took from my chat with vicky are as follows the first thing is around the value of infrastructure organizations so funders take note if it wasn't for the support that Vicky was able to get from Rotherham CVS, she probably wouldn't have been able to set up the charity or it wouldn't have got as far as it has done today. So I feel it's really important that funders recognise the value of these organisations. Secondly, the thing that struck me about Vicky was around her incredible vision that she had for the charity itself and also the vision that she has of a thriving voluntary and community sector within Doncaster. She seems to have an incredible skill in identifying the people that are needed to bring about a change and bringing those people together to make it happen. That's a skill in itself, but she also recognises where she has gaps in her skills as well. And she notes that she brings people with those skills to support her. The third thing is that as a founder of a charity, it sounds really, really tough. So my final thought for this podcast is if you're founding a charity, and you're finding it tough right now, find your local infrastructure organisation and keep at it. You're doing a brilliant job. Thanks for listening. Hope to catch you next time.